Welcome to the CFITrainer.net podcast. Today, our featured interview welcomes Doug Byron. He's the president and senior forensic chemist at FAST, Forensic Scientific Testing. Thanks for being with us, Doug. Thanks, Rod. Glad to be here, and thanks for having me. We, uh, we all appreciate your time. All right, so Doug, with fats and oils, pr- probably not the first potential fire cause that investigators consider when formulating and testing hypothesis, and the first place our minds go to when thinking about fats and oils is, is spontaneous combustion. So can you give us a little orientation? What's the role of fats and oils in fire ignition, and what are the ways in which fats and oils start fires? Yes, the fats and oils and vegetables, they are comprised of triglycerides. And so it's a big word. It's something that's used in health in a bunch of different ways, but it's still fats and oils. The same fats and oils or similar fats and oils are used in these vegetables. And what happens in these configuration of the oils is we have what we call double bonds. And these double bonds in these oils would break. And when they break, they produce heat. So in these vegetables, we call them, so you can have trip, uh, double bonds in three different areas or two different areas or one. We call that unsaturation. So when these unsaturated fats and vegetables, uh, we have a potential for what we call self-heating. So when these bonds break, it produces heat. So if we have a proper configuration of, say, oil onto cotton rags and it's exposed to air, then these bonds can break and the heat produced. Now, there's a neat little mechanism in the way these things can work, and when they're, these bonds and these oils are exposed to air and cotton rags, it's the insulation, insulating properties of the rags will actually uh, generate heat and insulate it. So if the heat generated is greater than heat dissipated, we have what we call an exothermic reaction, which means heat's being produced, and now it's not being able to escape, so it keeps increasing further and further until what we have a thermal runaway. With the thermal runaway, we'll eventually hit an auto-ignition temperature of the material, but we go way past that. That's when we have smoke, we have other indicators, horrible acrid odors, and then eventually, uh, you know, 700, 800 degrees to 1500 degrees Fahrenheit, we can have an open flame ignition. So that's just the nutshell of how basically how the spontaneous combustion and self-heating will work in a in rags for instance and a dryer fire so for the less experienced uh investigator something you know I, i'm thinking about rags that were left uh that had linseed oil for instance sitting in the back of the garage um could you give an example of of a fire case where where something like that happened absolutely um linseed oil is a drying oil and with the drying oil we, uh, we'll use rags for cleaning, clean up. We'll use the rags to spread the oil. And the oil is wet, so, you know, it's going to dry. So we put them in, so normally people just put them in a pile or a box and just stack them up. And sometimes the phone will ring, we get distracted, and these rags will just sit there. And over a period of time, they will start to smoke, and it's a, you know, uh, smells like recorded statements of um, tortillas, burning tortillas of, over time, and what goes from a pleasant smell to an acrid smell, tons of smoke. And with the smoke, we have this self-heating reaction, which will eventually uh, can lead to open flame ignition, and then with that, we can ex- extend that to actually a fire in your garage. All right. So how volatile are these fats and oils, and, and do they survive a fire? 
these fats and oils can survive a fire. Now, don't forget, these are a little bit different uh, because we, these are the reactant materials, so such as gasoline and normal fire debris analysis in which the gasoline can evaporate. And with our data, we can see that it's evaporated. Same thing with these oils. We know what these oils look like fresh, and so the volatility of the oils, and since they are the reacting material, they will degrade. And with degradation over time, we can then see the double bonds break, and then they become more saturated. And so we can see that. And it's, you, if you look at these oils, they're thick, they're heavy. You would think they were, you know, would withstand time and heat better than, you know, ignitable liquids, and they do for the most part. But if it was a, uh, say, it was a linseed oil with a solvent, for instance, a stain then the uh, ignitable liquid would be resilient, more resilient than the stain itself because the reactive material would be the stain and it degrades over time, whereas ignitable liquid would seek the lowest level and it can get into the wood. And so that's why we do ignitable liquid testing and fatty acid testing at the same time to determine uh, both, are, both are present. But they are pretty resilient for the most part, fatty acids are, and we can find those in testing as well. With your expertise, I figure you get a lot of calls uh, from the scene or, or, or after an investigation or, or out, during an investigation, I should say. How, how does a fire investigator know when they should consider fats and oils as a potential fire cause, a cause and, and give you a call? Um, we get a lot of the calls. Um, basically, they will, the fire investigator will go through the fire scene and see a potential area of origin, and then they'll go through their uh, elimination of ignition sources. And with the scene evaluation, normally you're going to have an isolated fire with the spontaneous combustion fire. It's isolated, maybe just a small ring, maybe from a laundry basket, for instance, and nothing else is burned, and they can say, well, well what, what happened here? And we don't have electrical, we don't have access to the structure, and then you can start thinking about, you know, asking in the interview what, you know, where the people were, what kind of time frame are we looking yeah, was there any other heavy smoke damage? And then at that point, you want to consider a self-heating fire. Or if you have a dryer uh, and people deal with massage oils or their restaurants or cooking environments or painters. And so anytime you have those key factors, you may want to consider uh, looking into a self-heating or spontaneous combustion reaction. And uh, then you look for some indicators of these reactions, such as the isolated fire, heavy smoke, acrid odors, and the biggest thing is a time frame. Do you have an extended time frame whereas an open flame ignition of common combustibles can extend pretty rapidly and you know, 20 minutes, where these reactions can go up to 80 hours in documented cases. Whoa. So if you have a large time frame, you may want to look into a spontaneous combustion fire. 80 hours. Help me out there. Up to 80 hours, yes. So, so just give me a, a quick, if I was looking into the room, uh, how would I know that that happened or, or, or how would I, what would it seem like during that 80 hours while that was happening? During that 80 hours, the initial, say, 72 to 75 hours, you wouldn't know anything. You just, every day, just common nothing. Uh, just typical see it. What you'll start noticing for that re- to if you were to see it at, before the fire, you would maybe start smelling as if someone's cooking with a deep frying, maybe fish, tortillas, or something of that nature. You could start smelling it. Um, but it doesn't smell that bad. It will produce white smoke once it starts reacting, gets close to the 80 hours. Uh, I give them about three to four hours 
So hours before the event, it will start smoking, and then your eyes can start watering, and then at that point, you can get an open flame. Now, after the fire, say the fire investigator comes in and sees this, it's either a pile that's just a circular or uh, burnt material, and normally rags is the, is the medium that these are in, and uh, you'll just see just burnt rags and heavy smoke damage. That's if it doesn't get to a bookshelf and start, you know, the entire structure on fire. Yeah, I was wondering just because from a witness perspective, um, doesn't sound like there'd be a whole lot of time where somebody could, you know, except for maybe, hey, I smelled, I smelled cooking. It sounds like by the time it gets acrid, I think, as you described it, uh, we're getting down to the last before, before ignition. It, it, it is. It's very, yes. The time frame from smelling really pleasant odors, it's normally going to be after hours, dark usually. Um, so normally these are unwitnessed at night, late fire, so you can't see the white smoke. And people that are neighbors are witnessing these. It goes unwitnessed because they don't, they just say, hey, I thought someone was cooking, for instance. We don't see the smoke, and then it just goes on and on, and they just turn a fan on, they ignore it, and then they don't think it's what they smelled or witnessed because the fire can be three to four hours later. Interesting. So how can the fire investigator test their hypothesis that the fat or oil was the fire cause? Well, that's an uh, interesting question that can be tested, and it can be tested based off the, the data collected at the scene and by the uh, material that's present, the work being done, and some of the interviews. And you normally can get some products, uh, comparisons of the oils, and say, hey, this has a warning label on the can. What can we do? It says warn of spontaneous combustion. Well, it can be tested in which, you know, investigator will do the deductive and inductive reasoning following 921 and either have a lab like us do a physical test on it or they can, you know, put some oil on a rag and they can try it out and see if this can and actually happen. And we can do the physical test in which you get the time frame, you know, when they started working, and then when the time of fire and to work between that and see if it's possible in the time frame that this can this material being used and the work being done can produce a fire in that time frame. So you can test the hypothesis and then you can do the chemical test to verify that the oil is in fact uh, capable of self-heating. So with evidence collection and analysis, what testing is available for fats and oils and, and what will the results tell the investigator? Uh, the fats and oil test actually is an ASTM method. It's, uh, I believe it's 2881, in which we, the fire debris that's collected, such as the rags or the wood under the pile or, say, something similar nearby, uh, the fire debris analyst can use the regular fire debris uh, test methods for ignible liquids and then using the same type of equipment without having to get new equipment or do something different, we can actually do a different extraction technique, and then with the same fire debris column, we can actually run uh, this fatty acid under the ASTM protocols, and then see what kind of unsaturated fatty acids or fats and oils are present, which would dictate the tendency it has to self-heat. And then we can take the forensic approach and see if it's degraded and, say, saturated or monounsaturated, one double bond then we can deduce that that oil had a higher tendency or more double bonds before the fire. So those tests can be done uh, just 
with the request or usually uh, when we see something come in from a dryer or rags from you know a porch we'll talk to the investigator and ask if there's a scenario if there's anything going on in which they need a different test run to better uh, supply them with that and results that would be more beneficial to the case if they suspect self-heating. All right. So a lot of times when I've spoken to people at the lab, they have desires or wishes uh, of the fire investigators. What are the kinds of things that you'd like them or, or would make their evidence collection better? Um, what normally happens, I recommend, is they pick up the phone and call and go through with their laboratory what they have and then you can see if there's oily substance on your gloves. And I'll say, hey, do you have anything oily? And they'll tell me, they'll describe what they have. Because each fire scene is always different. And sometimes you just have powdered debris. Sometimes you have greasy debris. Sometimes you still have towels available or rags. And I just tell them to you know, look around the scene, see if there's rags that are there that, say, the painters may have missed or just basically anything that can support a self-heating reaction or spontaneous combustion so we can find out and give them the best opportunity to uh, collect data and then they can use that for their hypothesis or their conclusions and we can uh, go from there. So once they've been told or once you've had that conversation on the phone, you want to give some hints uh, that can you know help them with properly collecting and preserving fat and oil samples? Yes, uh, try to get uh, samples that aren't ash and debris. We would try to get uh, rags that are still um, not totally burned. And more of the comparison oil, if we know what, uh, say, it was a cooking oil, uh, linseed oil, or a drying oil, or Sherwin-Williams, or uh, Valspar. And if we can have comparison oils, that helps. But the debris itself, uh, normally collect the debris just as you would if you were looking for ignitable liquids. Um, get something absorbent. The tiles, for instance, if they're white, they're partially burned, is better. And then you can get some of the burnt stuff, which we know if it's totally consumed and falling apart in your hands, it's probably going to be negative, but it still tells a story. So the debris should match the, and the data hopefully will match the, uh, the scene itself. And I'm guessing the comparison oils or, or whatever it is that you're looking for very often are in the garage or down in the basement? It can be, and it can be that... Uh, it's uh, on an invoice hmm. in which you know, Ace Hardware and buy Minwax, and we can see you got a mahogany Minwax stain, then uh, we can get you know purchase it at that point. Or it can be obtained, procured some way. Um, but, yeah, normally it's going to be in the garage. Uh, it could be from the painters or the whatever skill set's been there. You normally can have some. Or they actually have the, the cans that have been burned and you know, crushed through the fire that can have some residue in the cans and the labels would be burnt off, but we can just test the, the liquid still and see if it has to do with the, what's in the debris, and which goes into other cases of subrogation in which you know, the painters could be there, the stainers doing something else, and people saying that's not our oil, those aren't our rags. And so you can basically just try to take, you know, if it's a can and has something in it, you just try to take that or a little bit of it into a glass jar and uh, we'll just run them and see what, uh, and compare them to the debris. So, might be a crazy question, but who knows? Um, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, have you ever been involved in a fire that turned out to be intentional, uh, intentionally set, that involved uh, oils? Uh, 
potentially set, allegedly, allegedly a couple cases. This, these reactions uh, are very difficult to prove intent when, in fact, if the work being done is to use this material, and it's the time delayed device, really, because it may or may not go to full uh, open flame or combustion due to many factors such as reactant depletion, the oil, there's not enough oil, or not enough air, uh, access to air, or, you know, something disrupts it, and so it might not go, to, might not work. So it's a very uh, suspected, very difficult reaction to plan and to predict for folks that, you know, if you don't have rarely do it, but there have been a couple scenarios where it was alleged that it was in, used for intentional fires. Hmm. All right. Well, I just felt like, you know, be good to ask. Always, always creativity going on out there. Um, anything I'm missing uh, that we're missing here as far as things that we should communicate out to the fire investigator? Um, those are the basics. Uh, there's a few books out there, a couple chapters. Uh, chapter 14 of the Fire Debris Analysis book by Stauffer, uh, 2008. It has a pretty good section to describe these fats and oils. Um, I just finished Chapter 4 of the Forensic Analysis of Fire Debris and Explosives. It's uh, by Springer Publishers. And uh, it goes through more in depth what we described. And it's and it's written it for layman's, really, for just everyday people to not get caught up in chemistry, but to understand how these oils, everyday oils, can, in fact, cause fires. And you can include that or exclude that, and the investigator's hypothesis based off of the indicators we mentioned. And it basically just gives a thorough, slower version of what we discussed. So I'm trying often, and this is something I didn't talk to you about when we chatted a little bit before, but I'm often thinking about case studies or a situation that you can share where there was some interesting results tied to our conversation. Anything about a specific case without getting into, the, you know, giving oh, away sure. identity? There's, uh, there's a bunch of really neat cases, um, you know, some resulting in you know, bad things happening. Uh, dryer fires are notorious, probably the most uh, uh, common uh, today, for instance. There was a lab inspection, and you know, going through trying to you know include or exclude the dryer. You know, was a, was it a drum fire? So we can suspect self-heating or spontaneous combustion, a lint fire, bearing failure, heating element. So they're going through that, and they called me in and looking through the debris inside the drum. You know, it's just very hard debris, and get down to the bottom, and then there's rags, and you can smell the. the telltale smell of a self-heating fire and then there's still some oily rags and then they were able to determine that the dryer was off at the time of the fire the door was closed and then opened and was not affected and uh and it basically uh just was a localized fire that extended in the, in the laundry room but that scenario you can take that same scenario throughout every state in the country and it can extend and then cause bodily harm and death resulting in death, these reactions, but told me they go unnoticed, and a lot of the cases in the dryer cases, that dryer may sit there and for inspection for, you know, a year or two or three, and by that point, we don't have much of the evidence left that the volatile organic oils have oxidized and solidified, and we don't have anything left, negative samples. So that's an example of 
testing the debris as soon as you can as possible because you know, once you get attorneys and insurance companies involved, they, they want to have all, everybody available for inspection. Um, some of the other higher-profile cases was uh, in Savannah with a high-profile um, food manufacturer uh, made fish steaks. They were building a house, and it was spontaneous combustion was far from uh, basically being relevant. I had gas lanterns on the front of the house and had the painters just showed up. They hadn't even done any work. And they were saying it's a spontaneous combustion fire. But the neat thing about these fires is they're unwitnessed. But video cameras and CCTV plays a critical role in this particular fire in which then the Atlanta Gas Life, which is a gas company uh, producing gas, and the lanterns on the front of the house, were they involved? But we had a video from the marina facing the house. And then in a flashover, we could see the the painter's equipment and material inside the house. So we basically concluded up with all the testing that self-heating fire and spontaneous combustion was not the cause of the fire. So it can go both ways. Hmm. So and there's other interesting cases of uh, extension from spontaneous combustion fires that resulted in death of unsuspecting people uh, just from extension and as the fire progressed, people sleeping, because it does happen late at night, usually is an unwitnessed fire. Hmm. Well, I hope more and more people are getting educated to how they happen. Well, there was, I've been doing this for 20, well, actively pursuing the spontaneous combustion for 20 years, and there were many, many fire chiefs, and some of the older ones, um, they basically said this event didn't occur. And as we see, as time goes on now, we have written standards uh, for testing fire debris for fatty acids. So now it's become, uh, it's recognized as a problem, and with dryers and staining and painters and some of the other things. So now we can put those indicators and science and chemistry and physical tests together to put the, both science, which is the lab, normally the lab, they refer to them as technicians, I refer to them as a scientist, and we can take that data from us, put it with the fire investigator, and see if that fits the hypothesis or doesn't fit the hypothesis, either way. But we're more integral into the uh, investigation, which is more fun to me as an analyst and it is just to sit in the lab. Well, speaking of fun, it sounds like you enjoy teaching, so I thought maybe it'd give you an opportunity to talk about some of the training that you do. Yeah, I do like doing that. And it, yeah, I do get excited and passionate about it because it is interesting and fun. I go uh, have these classes I put together. It's uh, normally a, uh, a full day. What I like to do is talk about how the fiber analysis and some of these stains and oils work together so we can look and see the mineral spirits or MPD in the product and the stain work together and the new uh, adaptions of decrease in volatile organics and yet still having a, a stain. So what I like to do is teach about that. In the meantime, on breaks, I go out and set up uh, scenarios and set up uh, demonstrations of self-heating reactions and spontaneous combustion. And then in the afternoon, it has enough time to react. And then sometimes I'll put potting soil out there too. And then we'll let the investigators go and witness the odors, witness the smoke, and then see how much smoke, and they can see for themselves if they have a spontaneous combustion or suspect a spontaneous combustion fire, they would have witnessed one. And then they could think about their experience with the class and then use that on site and on their scene and to ask questions and to hear the answers that they may indicate that it was a self-heating fire. So I do like doing that and then 
we can let them see the temperatures and some of the other uh, thermocouples so we can see that it not only reaches auto-ignition temperature of the cotton rags, it exceeds it sometimes two and three times that temperature. So auto-ignition auto does not equal uh, spontaneous combustion or self-heating fires. It continues to amaze me. I, I know a lot of people who are involved in fire investigation, and, and they talk about this like, oh, yeah, happens happens all the time, and it's still amazing. I, I you know, I, I mean, when I'm out there working on something in the garage, and I start walking to the back of the garage with the rag, and I'm like, no, you can't, you can't do that. Don't leave that hanging out there. Yeah, the uh, it's interesting with fats and oils. Don't mistake the oils as being petroleum oils, such as uh, uh, motor oil, transmission fluid, power steering fluid. Those have already oxidized and won't self-heat. Are not suspect to it. But there are many videos that, that I have of restaurant fires in which you just look at, you know, a simple rag with corn oil or peanut oil, soybean oil, or one of the cooking oils and uh, grilling oils, and you wouldn't suspect that that rag or two or three of those, after they come out of the laundry room and in a restaurant, you fold them, put them on a shelf, and walk away. Everybody's happy, 11, 12 o'clock at night. And then the uh, closed-circuit television at 2 or 3 in the morning sees white smoke drifting by. So there's lots of videos of those, too. And, and then hopefully it doesn't extend past the rack from when they dried the towels. But it, uh, it, it happens a lot. But not a t most of the time, thank goodness, it doesn't extend and burn the, house, the structures down. But they, not only do they, but they, they will. And it can cause millions of dollars of damage, including death. Well, Doug, I appreciate you coming on the podcast with us today to highlight this. Uh, we typically don't get a lot of attention towards this fats and oils uh, topic. I know Bobby Shaw had said to me, you know, you should talk to Doug, and uh, th this should be a conversation you guys should have to share with everybody. Thanks, Rod. Thanks for having me. All right. Be well, Doug. For guidance on evidence collection, we have a link on this podcast page, the IWI's Evidence Collection Guide. COVID-19 continues to be a primary concern for the fire service and law enforcement. Fire investigators should already be well-versed in the use of PPE to mitigate exposures to carcinogens at the fire scene, but the biological nature of COVID-19 transmission should cause investigators to re-examine their sanitation and personal protection practices. Some things to think about include sanitizing skin and disinfecting tools before, during, and after scene examination and interpersonal contact refraining from sharing tools with others, wearing gloves throughout the investigation, particularly when touching high-touch surfaces at the scene, assessing the respiratory and eye protection you select for its ability to prevent breathing in or absorbing respiratory droplets without sacrificing mitigation of other airborne particles found at fire scenes, wearing breathing protection when in contact with other emergency responders and the public, providing masks to persons you speak with or interview who do not have them, practicing social distancing when speaking with other professionals at the scene or interviewing witnesses, considering conducting interpersonal contact, including interviews in exterior locations rather than inside buildings, and disinfecting your vehicle regularly after fire scene examinations and interpersonal contact. Resources are available from the IAFC to assess the impact of COVID-19 on various aspects of the provision of emergency services, including communication and contact with the public, PPE, mass gatherings, and civil unrest. You can now support the IWI Foundation through Amazon's Smile. 
Through this program, you can designate the IWI Foundation as a beneficiary of a donation by Amazon of 1.5% of your purchases that you make at smile.amazon.com. To designate the IWI Foundation as your Amazon Smile beneficiary, go to smile.amazon.com forward slash ch forward slash 26 dash 380-5346. Or I think when you go to smile.amazon.com and it asks you to fill that out, you can search out the IWI Foundation. I'm pretty sure that's what I did. Once you complete this designation, you do your Amazon shopping from the smile.amazon.com URL and 1.5% of your purchases will be donated to the IWI Foundation. Just a note, we'll look forward to speaking with President Rick Jones next month and find out more about his agenda for the rest of this year and beyond. This podcast and CFITrainer.net are made possible by funding from a fire prevention and safety grant from the Assistance to Firefighters Grant Program administered by FEMA and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Support is also provided by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives and voluntary online donations from CFITrainer.net users and podcast listeners like you. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Stay safe. We'll see you next time. Let somebody know about the podcast and uh, give us your feedback if you can on the feedback form at the end of the page. Once again, be safe out there. For the IWI and CFITrainer.net, I'm Rod Ammon.